When does artistic genius emerge? Does it burst forth fully formed or does it take time to manifest? Let me put that another way. At what point did Stanley Kubrick become Stanley Kubrick? First, he was the guy who was paid by Look magazine to take photographs. Then he became the guy who made two short subject documentaries. That guy then became the guy who produced, direct, lit and edited an ultra low budget war movie, Fear and Desire, all with the aim of breaking into Hollywood. That was 1953 and the break didn't come. So two years later, he made another B movie, this time a gangster picture, Killer's Kiss. For anyone who saw it upon its original release, not one said, now there's a guy who's going to become one of the world's greatest filmmakers. That was followed by the noir heist, The Killing. I see. Will you go right ahead, George? If you want to act that way, I certainly won't try to stop you. Sherry, now Sherry, honey, don't be sore at me. Well, after all, one woman's been married for five years and her own husband doesn't trust her. Why, you think more of them than you do of me. What right have you got to say a thing like that? You know I'm crazy about you. I'd do anything in the world for you. Honey, you're the one I'm doing it for if I didn't love you so much. Look, I don't want you to do anything for me. I don't even want to talk to you anymore. You go up and see your fellow, whatever you want to do. The killing earned strong reviews, but when executive Max Youngstein was asked for the studio's opinion, he said that the talent behind the film was, quote, not far from the bottom, which meant that the company that made The Killing had to pony up and finance Kubrick's next picture, Paths of Glory. And that was the company Kubrick had set up with his producing partner, James B. Harris. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Yes, for Paths of Glory, Kubrick had a big star, Kirk Douglas. But again, the film failed to make money. Next, he was the guy Marlon Brando hired in to direct a Western, Brando was starring in and producing called One-Eyed Jacks. But deep into pre-production, Brando fired Kubrick, at which point Kirk Douglas called. He was starring in and producing his own picture, Spartacus. And just one week into production on that film, Douglas fired his director, Anthony Mann. Uh, may, I, uh, may I ask you something? You can ask. Surely you know you're going to lose, don't you? You have no chance. This very moment, six cohorts of the garrison of Rome are approaching this position. What are you going to do? In an era of overblown historical epics, Spartacus earned stronger views, stronger box office, and strongest of all, four Academy Awards. Stanley Kubrick was finally a director of good standing. However, that standing took a bit of a hit with his next picture, an adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, a dark comedy that attracted more controversy than it did commercial or critical kudos. Oh, you must see the garden before you go. You must. Uh, my flowers win prizes around here. <laughs> They're the talk of the neighborhood. Voila. My yellow roses. My, oh, my daughter. Uh, darling, turn that down, please. I can offer you a comfortable home sunny garden, a congenial atmosphere, my cherry pies. Ultimately, the film was seen as little more than an adaptation of Nabokov's regarded novel, and the finished film would be the last time Kubrick did not share or take sole writing credit. Lolita also stands as the last time Kubrick ever physically filmed in America, 
Although the lion's share of the production took place in England, he did travel back to the US for some second unit footage. Hindsight does not give 2020 vision. It microscopes time, crushing events against each other so that it appears this event would inevitably follow that event, and from that event, success was the only outcome. In 1962, the reality was that the same director had made a war picture, a gangster, and a heist movie. Another war picture, been hired and fired from a western, recovered to make one historical epic, and gone on to make a dark comedy. But after 10 years of being the guy who, Dr. Strangelove marked the arrival of Stanley Kubrick, the writer, director, producer, and ultimately cinema's most revered auteur. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. In fact, it would appear that even Kubrick had a strong sense of his own imminence. Because in the trailer for the film, which he himself cut with celebrated animator Pablo Ferro, it not only announced the film as a Stanley Kubrick production, the trailer begins with several photographs of Kubrick directing on set. The wildly innovative trailer deploys over 220 shots in 97 seconds to sell thermonuclear annihilation as a comedy. And while the film itself came nowhere near matching the trailer's radical formalism, the trailer's aim seems to have been designed to announce Kubrick as the feature film's driving force. All you have to do is compare the publicity campaign promoting Dr. Strangelove to the way Lolita was advertised. There, the slogan ran, however did they make a film of Lolita? The wording there admits to the fact that the film was more an adaptation of an already highly publicized novel than it was a film that should be judged on its own merits. In fact, Lolita was the last time anyone's name superseded that of Kubrick's own. From Dr. Strangelove onwards, Kubrick's name was always above everyone else's, simply because his vision superseded everyone else's. By the time Kubrick tackled works by Arthur C. Clarke, Anthony Burgess, William Makepeace Thackeray, Stephen King, Gustav Harsford and Arthur Schnitzler, his name overshadowed them all. Colonel! Colonel, I must know what you think has been going on here. You want to know what I think? Yes. I think you're some kind of deviated prevert. I think General Ripper found out about your preversion and that you were organizing some kind of mutiny of preverts. Now move! It is hard to fathom today just what a groundbreaking and unique film Dr. Strangelove was when it was first released. It was the early 1960s and the Cold War was very hot. The Cuban Missile Crisis had brought the world to the brink of nuclear destruction. And here was a filmmaker who dared to make a joke of it all. The truth was that Kubrick did not set out to make a comedy. His initial intention had been to make a serious drama. As early as 1958, he had been seeking a book about the topic to bring to the screen. He found it in Peter George's Red Alert, that George had originally written under the name of Peter Bryant, with the story then called Two Hours to Doom. But no sooner had Kubrick optioned the property and begun working on its adaptation, that he realised that it could only really work as a satire. Collaborating with Peter George on the screenplay, Kubrick soon found that the points he wanted to make were better made via comedy, and so that was the direction he went in. Uncertain how far he could go with the jokes, yet fervently intent on going as far as he could, Kubrick contacted Terry Southern. 
Southern was the author of The Magic Christian, a satire about materialism. As well as being an author, Southern was also an essayist and a college lecturer who had somehow gravitated to where big cultural shifts had been happening. In the 1950s, he had been part of Paris's Rive Gauche, and then the Beat Movement in Greenwich Village. In the early 1960s, he turned up in London. Southern's penchant was for the most scabrous satire, and it was his arrival in pre-production that saw the summoning of a character who did not even exist in George's novel. Dr. Strangelove, do we have anything like that in the works? A moment, please, Mr. President. Under the authority granted me as Director of Weapons Research and Development, I commissioned last year a study of this project by the Blend Corporation. Based on the findings of the report, my conclusion was that this idea was not a practical deterrent for reasons which at this moment must be all too obvious. The character's name alone should give you the measure of Southern's dark and essential humour. But however funny the script was on the page, Kubrick knew that in order for it to work on screen, it had to be played dead straight. The cast, led by Peter Sellers, George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden, all took heed. Because they knew the more seriously they took it, the funnier it would be for the audience, and the funnier it was for us, the more we would realise the nightmare. But even though comedy was Kubrick's intention, he almost blew it with his initial planned ending. There, Kubrick wanted, and indeed filmed, an enormous custard pie fight between the Americans and the Russians. It was only after it had been cut together and fully screened that Kubrick realised that in the film's closing moments, he had flipped the comedic switch from satire to farce. But there was so little time left before the film's premiere that Kubrick did not have time to rewrite the finale. So he simply dropped the whole sequence and cut straight to the ending that delivers the biggest and most breathtaking joke of all. But if Doctor Strangelove were only about nuclear destruction, it wouldn't have had any subtext. And just as much as anything else, subtext is what comedy thrives on. Which is where the film's endless sexual innuendos come in. Starting with the title character, consider these names. President Muffley. Group Captain Mandrake. Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. President Kissoff. General Buck Turgidson. Ambassador Sadesky. Moving on to the opening credits, what strikes you is that, like all of Kubrick's subsequent films, the more you watch it, the more you notice how it all stitches together. It opens with a mid-air refueling manoeuvre, with an extremely phallic pump depositing precious fuel into the receiving B-52 Stratofortress. All this while we hear an instrumental version of the 1930s standard, Try a Little Tenderness. Life is created but is threatened when the appropriately named Colonel Jack D. Ripper obsesses over his own precious fluids. By the end of the movie, the bombs are dropped, their cargo is detonated, and in 95 minutes flat, Kubrick takes us from conception to annihilation. Sir, I have a plan. <laughs> Monsieur, I can walk! Dr. Strangelove may have satirised the end of the world, but with it, 
Stanley Kubrick became one of cinema's most important artists.